Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of Freedom, Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the TLS. My name is Thea Lenarduzzi and I am joined this week by the TLS's green-fingered arts editor, Lucy Dallas. Lucy, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I say green-fingered because last time we were here together we launched a half-baked, extremely sporadic, I think this is only the second second instalment, uh, feature in which you showcase your vegetal prowess. So, Lucy Dallas, what's growing in your allotment at the moment? Well... First of all, I'm not. I'm not happy with the idea of showcasing my Your vegetal, vegetal prowess. <laughs> I'm really not Sorry sure about, about that, that one. Uh, very little, Thea, because it's April. It is. Yeah. But I'm about to start defending my soft fruits. That's not oh. a euphemism. <laughs> Seems because... fitting for our Avengers special this week. Double <laughs> yeah, sidelining. Exactly. <laughs> no, because the gooseberries and the red currants are going to come up, and last year. Um, there were like millions of them on and the you bushes. you were not prepared. I was not prepared and I got not a single one. I mean, not oh. one because it's the wildlife, which I had been admiring in a kind of um, look at the lovely birds and squirrels way, was really way ahead of me <laughs> on that one. So this time um, I'm going to show them who's boss, which is almost certainly them. But I'm going <laughs> yeah. to make an attempt. Try I'm, to temper their bossness. I'm going to net it and make <laughs> things a little bit more difficult for them. Well, I think I think we'll all agree that we're looking forward to the next instalment in, in this uh, mini series. Um, before before I tell you what we have coming up on this week's show, uh, I'm pleased to announce a special subscription offer for podcast listeners only. For just five pounds or five dollars, uh, you can have six weeks of the TLS's Complete Works membership. Lucy, could you explain what that is? I can. You get the TLS, you get the paper delivered to your door every Thursday. Every Thursday, let's be honest, if you're very lucky. <laughs> yes, everything, all, all the stars align. Yeah. Uh, full access to the TLS website and the app, so all the stuff that you can't get anywhere else. And the archive that has over a century of our articles with Virginia Woolf, uh, Roland Barthes. Is it, has it got Roland Barthes? It I, has. Know that, I thought yeah, it did. It I wasn't sure. Uh, Martin Amis, all those wonderful people. Well, so if you live in the USA or Canada, go to, and I think Stig might have got this wrong last week because let's face it, it's a torrent of URL nonsense. Uh, podcast.the-tls.com. 
Uh, if you live anywhere else, including the UK, then go to the-tls.co.uk slash pod19. That's P-O-D-1-9. Woo. And so <laughs> this week on the show... We have a special focus in this week's issue of the TLS on superheroes, comics and graphic novels. I will be almost completely out of my depth, but fear not, Ros Caveney will be bringing her vastly superior knowledge to bear. In the latest roundup of the best children's and YA literature, Imogen Russell Williams has considered books with LGBTQ themes, covering myriad identities and myriad paths to adulthood, from little boys who transform into glittering mermaids to a book of cheerful, filthy advice for those in the clammy grasp of puberty. Unless you live in a cave on a mountain without TV, radio or Wi-Fi, in which case, well done for listening to this, you've probably heard about the new Avengers film, part of a phase which comprises 22 films from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You may be a superfan or it might leave you cold, but it is breaking all sorts of records and it's difficult to avoid. We will be discussing it today, with no spoilers, don't worry, with Roz Caveney, who has written about the story cycle for us in this week's paper. Roz, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Um, can we start with, I'm afraid, quite a big and rather difficult question. Um, why superheroes? Why do you think we want protagonists with capes and powers at the moment rather than cowboys or detectives or Bruce Willis in a vest? <laughs> I mean, it's, maybe we want that too. It's a mixture of things. It's partly the sheer bulk of material. Both the DC and Marvel comics companies have built a complex universe of story that's one of the biggest narrative artefacts, certainly in Western culture, partly because it's about superheroes, but partly because it's about a lot of other characters as well. I mean, most of their superheroes have civilian identities, and a lot of the time the comics are about those civilian lives. So it's not just the the capes and the powers... It's the people. It's the way that as a collective enterprise, because obviously every superhero has been written by a vast number of hands and drawn by a vast number of artists over the, in the case of DC, 80 years, in the case of Marvel, 60 plus years, with the result that they've developed complexity. I mean, there's nothing that consistent in the universe of cowboy films is the answer, I think. It's the layered richness that superhero narratives have acquired completely by chance. If, as happens in Alan Moore's Watchmen, the obsession had been with comics about pirates, then we'd be obsessed with pirates. Yes. But yeah. that's yeah. not what happened. We got, we got obsessed from the 1930s onwards with caped superheroes. They filled a need... Grant Morrison, uh, in a book, suggests that they are gods and saints for a secular world. Mm. And that's obviously part of the story, too. But, I mean, presumably it also boils down to the sheer size and heft of the companies, DC and Marvel together. And I think presumably this is going to be an outdated statistic, but in 2017 they together owned 70% of, of... 
of that particular kind of corner of the market. Well, in, yes. in, any other, in, other, in any other sector, you'd be talking about monopolies and worrying about the impact that that would have on culture. Well, yes. Um, but on the other hand, part of what's happened is that sooner or later, every brilliant independent writer in the comics field either makes the decision to work part-time for them or to be pure and poor. Yeah, I read somewhere that didn't Marvel start trying to do this as an independent kind of operation and so they ended up franchising off lots of their, lots yeah. of their belongings but they tried to do it as an independent company and they just couldn't and so yeah, now we're that's left right. with these I mean, absolute uh, it's, it, And of course they are, they are owned by Disney and DC are owned by Warner. Mm. Mm. They are themselves part of much larger conglomerates. It's a bit... The only thing, when we were talking about it earlier, Thea, the only thing that I could think about in similar in, in terms, similar sort of monopoly-type uh, situations was the big tech mm, the companies. Big Those are the only things that really approach it. And they're not a million miles away, are they? And, the other and of, thing, of course, the other thing that's happened is when people have done subversive stuff, the tropes of subversion have got absorbed into... I mean... Yeah, I was about to say, they're very good at spotting talent and bringing it in... Yeah, and, as you it. say, paying them a bit more. <laughs> and also letting them have their head. I mean, mm. uh, obviously, because we were, we were and are friends, I watched the process whereby Neil Gaiman started off doing little indie comments, comics mm. with Dave McKean, like Violent Cases, mm. which was about his father and about Al Capone's osteopath. And a couple of years later, DC came to London and showed him the kingdoms of the world from a high place, which is how he got to do Sandman, because they trust... The, the other thing they've done is trust talent. Mm. Yes, and they are... Which, which big corporations are not always good at doing. No. Sometimes they make safe bets, and actually, artistically, that turns out to be... Yeah, I mean, and, and Marvel and DC have had hundreds of false steps, but also the things we remember tend to be the things that worked. And that's just, hate to say it, capitalism in action. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, it's, it's one of the things that does get done sometimes. And one of the consequences of that is occasional flirtations with the ultra-right, like the, the, the recent Captain, Captain America was always a secret Nazi, uh, plot plot that Mar Marvel did for a while, which has a joke about it in the movie. Mm. What's what's this this subplot? I, I mean, I'm it's, completely. It's, I have no idea. They're, they're, it's they're, one of the byways, isn't it? It was a byway. Yeah. It was an alternate universe. It's, it was all oh, a dream. Real. It's okay. it, it was a bad idea. <laughs> we forget. We, we will never speak of it again. Yeah. Except there is a joke about it in the movie. Okay. Um, I've seen I've seen the movie. I went to see the movie on Sunday because I, I just felt I should. Otherwise, I'd be mm. sitting here well, before you feeling. There is naked. what you think is going to be a reprise <laughs> uh -huh. of oh. a famous scene from Captain America: Winter Soldier. Right. And we won't and spoil that's it. Where and we'll it, leave gets, it. <laughs> yep. And then, and then, then something happens. He diffuses the situation <laughs> is by what is actually a joke. Yeah. And Ros, you say it's among, as you say, it's among the largest bodies of story in Western culture. Do you think it will rank along other story cycles, those of gods and other types of hero? Well, more people, more people probably know it now. Mm. I was just thinking about Norse myth and Greek yeah, myth and exactly. the Ring of the Nibelungen. But, but, but yeah. they, you know, Marvel, it, 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 it's a vast amoeba that absorbs everything. 
I mean, you, you, you know, it's like the way that sooner or later Disney will will buy the will, will buy up all of Jane Austen, and then yeah. Elizabeth Bennet will be a Disney princess. Yeah, gosh, I mean, it's impossible. <laughs> yeah. It's impossible to conceive of the end of of this empire. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> it's slightly scary, but also slightly wonderful as well. <laughs> But also the world of the superheroes, especially the ones that we're seeing on screen. I know the comics is a, is, is a different timeline, but the world is changing, isn't it? In that now we are seeing a new diversity mm. in the characters. And as you say in your piece, it used to be a bunch of white men. And then uh, Black Panther proved that an almost all black cast and director can be a smash at the box office. Yeah. As well, I mean, in fairness to, Chip, to both companies, they started doing this as long ago as the 1960s, the 1970s. Stan Lee, who was the co-creator stroke entrepreneur of Marvel, was a man with quite liberal politics, given that he was also slightly in the pocket of the CIA, but that's another story for another time. Story for another time. Um, So, for example, the persecuted mutants of the X-Men were a free-floating signifier for oppressed minorities. And he brought in, slightly time-servingly, black exploitation superheroes like the Black Panther, like Luke Cage, who's had a television sh- very successful television show, at quite an early point in the history of Marvel. But that's become much more of a thing recently, Yes, because of the, the critic, in the films, but also also in the comics. I mean, you have one of the most successful comics of recent years has been Ms. Marvel, who is not to be confused with Captain Marvel oh, because yeah, she, very Ms. Muslim Marvel is a superhero. is a young New Jersey Muslim fangirl mm. who acquires super powers that are not the same as her her, her heroine, mm-hmm. whom she stands as they as as the kids say, but who is trying to balance being a good little Muslim schoolgirl and being a superhero. Mm. And it's not played in any parodic way. It's written with real respect, but also real charm. And she has long chats about superpowers with her imam without actually telling him anything. As I said, I went to see um, the Avengers film on Sunday. And I went to it very much with this idea that it's almost an impervious world. It's too late for me. So much has happened that I could never even begin to get involved. Um, and I was quite surprised, actually, that the I, I, the film, it was not for me, uh, but I appreciated it as a thing. Um, but most importantly, most interestingly, I think, was it was perfectly accessible to someone who had not seen 21 films before it. Mm. Yes, you can Even though it's in. been described yep. as a fan yep. service film and with all of these asides and nods and stuff, and you mentioned one before, for example, it, it didn't seem necessary to the enjoyment of the thing. Yeah. I mean, the, th- the thing is, it's partly because all of the, the, because of the layered complexity that multiple collaboration brings to the characters, they're simultaneously archetypes and individuals. Um, and they, we, we sort of absorb them through the culture. Mm. You may not, you may think you don't know who these people are, but you sort of do. Mm. But I mean, Obviously, that's even truer with the with the two great DC characters, Superman and Batman, because we all know that Batman is really Bruce Wayne, that he was traumatized by the death of his parents in Crime Alley, 
we all know that Superman was sent here from Krypton when Krypton exploded. That's just one of those things we all know. We know that as well as we know that, oh, that some Francis talked to birds. Mm. As you say, it's become a part of the fabric of our, our web, you know, our, our tapestry of stories that we share. Well, I wonder if uh, when you when we were talking about other myths, I suppose it is a bit like the Greek myths because they're also told mm. by multiple voices. Yes, exactly. And have been retold many times. And in the same way, we know that Odysseus met someone with one eye. And, you know, even yeah. if you haven't read any of it. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it is the thing that happens when stories are told over and over again mm. and constantly rebooted, that they acquire texture. Mm. One of the consequences of what I've called the universalization of geek culture is that we've all sort of learned to read popular culture as thick texts and look at, as it were, all the stories that have been told layered on top of each other, all, all of the alternative stories, all the alternative versions of stories. This is one of the reasons why Into the Spider-Verse, which you know, the, the cartoon I, I talk about in the review, which came out last year, mm. can simply say, oh, this is going to be a Spider-Man film in which we won't talk about Peter Parker because in the alternate universe that I think we can spoil into the Spider-Verse. I think it's been out long enough. I think we can... In yeah. the alternate universe in which this particular Spider-Man film is dead, Peter Parker gets himself killed and this younger... Afro-Hispanic kid Miles Morales, who has also been hit bitten by a radioactive spider, has to take on the, the mantle. But not only that, he finds himself, because it's about a machine that creates portals between multiple universes, he finds himself fighting alongside a much older version of Peter Parker, a version of Peter Parker from a black and white gangster universe, played by Nicolas Cage, a small cartoon animal, Yes, spider a pig. pig. A small spider pig. pig. Yeah, he's brilliant. Um, Who's uh, referenced uh, in The Simpsons, if I'm not mistaken? No, that, 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 that's the other way round. It's the other way round. Marvel yeah. stole it from The Simpsons. <laughs> and and also Spider Gwen. Now Gwen Stacy is one of the standard characters of the Marvel universe. She's the first high school girlfriend who very tragically gets killed. Except that there isn't. There is a version of the Marvel universe which has had its own comics in which it wasn't Peter Parker that got bitten by the spider, it was Gwen. And her, Peter Parker, got, got himself killed. So rather than him living with the guilt of her death, she lives with the guilt of his death. It's a lovely device because it solves any questions about who it can be or kind of sacred notions of who it is or any questions about diversity or anything else in one go and and then it's just like okay well what happens now and as stan lee himself says in the persona of a of, of a crooked souvenir shop owner when miles morales buys his first costume he said sooner or later it fits everybody yeah and that's it's him lovely. making a cameo appearance just before, yes. not long before yes. he died yeah well, because the other two that in the film that had come out subsequently were i think shot earlier mm. but he did record the voiceover for the cartoon right. mm. To what extent do these these works respond to the times in in which they are shown? So the Avengers film, for example, what what are the politics of that, or does it does it sort of does it steer clear of it? Well, I'd argue both yes and no, because part of the point of the Marvel Universe is that Stan was an old-fashioned Roosevelt Democrat, 
the version of Captain America that he brought back from suspended animation is very specifically a Roosevelt anti-fascist Democrat dumped in the 21st century by being awoken from sleep. And so it's partly about values. It's partly about look, values that don't change and confronting the modern world with them. Um, that's part of the charm. Uh, I mean, a lot of people who don't know, the, know all this assume that Captain America is a gung-ho fascist. And he's not. He's, if you, you look at Captain America, the first Avenger, it's very much shot as a World War II film, not just about fighting Germans, but about quite specifically fighting Nazis. Mm. Except it's fighting, and it's fighting Hydra, who are like the Nazis' Nazis. They're like Nazis squared, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> like nastier than the Nazis. The Red Skull. <laughs> yeah. Also, the movies are quite, I mean, Robert Downey Jr. made us love Tony Stark, but the movies, while loving the super technologist millionaire playboy philanthropist, as he once describes himself, is also very critical of him. And it doesn't forget his past as and it an arms dealer. It doesn't. No, indeed. Everything has consequences. Mm. And his earlier irresponsibly, ir irresponsibility about being an armaments manufacturer comes back to bite him hard in various of the films. And you can argue that, in a way, as I, as I have, <laughs> uh, that... That one of the reasons why Thanos works so well as a villain for these movies is that there's a sense in which he's Tony Stark's shadow double. Because he really thinks that he can solve the universe's problems with a single bold gesture. Are we allowed to say what that gesture no. is? No. Oh, well, it's, it in, it's, in, it's, in, it's the end it's of the end Infinity of the War. It is, it is. I know. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it seems like it's quite a striking, without saying it then, it's a very striking political thing to do, in a sense. It's, it's, yeah. It's, mm. it's, 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 I mean, it's mass destruction. Yeah, yes. I won't, I won't yeah, yeah. add any more detail to that. So, I mean, I suppose... So. But the, the, the point about Thanos is that, at the end of the day, he is incapable of love. Yep. He thinks he loves his daughters. He tortures them for their own good. Mm. He thinks he's doing the right thing, yet somehow the only people he recruits as allies, aides, are utterly monstrous. And yet that's the difference between him and Tony. Thanos has no friends, he only has minions. Mm. I suppose that, that sort of brings me to what will probably have to be the final point then. You, you say in your piece that a big theme in, in, in The Avengers is, is family. Mm. And, you know, that can be family as in the domestic situation, but also between colleagues and friends. But in the family sphere, um, it's, it's a very nuclear family that we're talking about here. In terms of the gender, the, the men are the men and the women are the women and... Well, Could things have been uh, pushed a bit more here? On the well, the Guardians of the Galaxy, the raccoon's a raccoon and the tree's a tree. <laughs> that yes, means nothing to me. He's quite, <laughs> I understand. <laughs> he's quite a male raccoon and quite a male tree, I would argue. Well, I mean, I don't think, I don't think the tree ever gets <laughs> No, I don't have think Have I fallen asleep? <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry. Do we need to be talking about equality rather than diversity? Because it's all very well to introduce characters from different backgrounds and of different genders but they're still conforming well except again 
that's how the movies have been because they've been playing it safe. If you look at the history of the Avengers as a team in the comic books, they've, they've on occasion had more women than men. Certainly they've had female team leaders. Right. But have they ever had um, gay couples? No, or... not yet. Hardly. Yeah. Hardly well, there at we all. go. I that's think one that's, of the criticisms. That's, what... that's mm. obviously one of the battles because... Maybe that's the next. Well, you see, for a long time they were hindered in that respect by the comics code. You know that in the 1950s there was a congressional investigation of comics as part of an attempt to understand juvenile delinquency in the 50s. The congressional inquiry was, was visited by a psychiatrist called Frederick Wharton. And Frederick Wharton went along and said, this stuff is all terribly subversive, and apart from anything else, it promotes homosexuality, because look at Batman and Robin, and look at all these capes, and they all wear tights. And, <laughs> and this actually had an effect of imposing on comics something rather like the, Hay the Hayes Code in the 30s on movies, which... Though the comics code only really lasted into the 70s, it colossally inhibited them from explicit stuff. Whereas, of course, in a sense, one of the consequences of that was that, one, that they did it all through coding, and two, an entire generation of queer, gender-diverse kids grew up going, I know what's really going on. Even when it wasn't, mm. because you will be aware that there is fan fiction about imaginary same-sex couplings between characters yes. in popular culture. Yeah. The ability to look at popular culture and consume it looking for possible relationships you can write about in fan fiction is called wearing slash goggles. Do you know what? Everything now has started to make sense for me. And I think we're going to have to leave it there because <laughs> otherwise a whole other dimension will be introduced. We've got and my, 80 my, years my worth of comics to catch up pop. on now. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ross Caveney, thank you so much no for problem. coming in. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
From the Marvel Universe, we return to the more recognisable, if perhaps no less fraught ground, of our own time and place. Many of the preoccupations carry over, in fact, Imogen Russell Williams suggests in her roundup of some of the best fiction for children and young adults on an LGBTQ theme. There are questions about who has power and who does not, what responsibilities come with that power, how stories can be adapted for our times, what makes a good hero, and how best to represent and so empower those whose experience does not fit the existing template. In this context, Imogen points out the power belongs to those closest to children, either to shame them into harmful conformity or to welcome and celebrate their self-expression, so that, you might say, a perceived problem, an issue to be dealt with, might be recast as something of a special power to enjoy, to admire and to share in. Imogen Russell-Williams joins us in the studio now to talk us through some of the authors and books she recommends. Nice to have you with us, Imogen. Mm, Lovely to be here. Um, You say it seems an appropriate time to discuss books that feature LGBTQ families and protagonists. Why, Why is that? Well, I mean, it's always an appropriate time, but particularly at the moment, uh, I was struck by seeing parents protesting against inclusive sex education in Birmingham. And I think that that speaks to perhaps a misapprehension about what sort of education is actually going on. There's nothing age inappropriate. There's nothing explicit happening. It's just very straightforwardly a matter of saying some families have two mums, some families have two dads. Um, And I think the more you can get that across in in the picture books that kids are reading as well, um, as well as maybe the books for five to eight-year-olds, the beginning readers and independent readers, the less of an issue, um, in inverted commas, it it becomes. How then do these different books deal with... Because there's a dual impulse then to sort of focus on and celebrate the... the exceptional aspect of of the situation or sexuality or at the same time as not making it this this big deal yes there's so there's really there are as you've pointed out there are two ways of 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 addressing the topic i suppose and in five to eight books i'd really like to see more of what we might call incidental representation when you have families of a non-traditional makeup um but that's not the story that's just in the background and it it doesn't really register um with the uh kids in the story unless they're popping up and saying oh dad and other dad um can i go out for tea or whatever it is but one of the real beauties that I talk about in, in this piece is a picture book called Julian is a Mermaid. Um, in its original form is Julian is a Mermaid. Um, and that really foregrounds the idea of a little boy who loves mermaids and wants to dress up as a mermaid. And there's a moment at which his nana could... Uh, you think it's a, such a dramatic moment on the page. You think that his gra- his nana, when she finds him all togged up in flowers and a drapey curtain for a tail and with lipstick on, you really think that she's about to either let him have it or just storm out and and leave him alone just to feel shame. But instead, she comes in and she brings him a necklace and this completes his outfit and then she takes him to join this mermaid parade. And it is honestly one of the most poignant and beautiful moments I think I've ever seen in a picture book. It sounds it. It I mean, even just listening to you recount it. Yeah, and there's a beautiful picture of it as well that goes with your piece. I like, um, in in that book there, um, Jessica Love, she describes how um, in making the book she realised if she changed the colour of the paper, 
um, it sort of quite literally seemed to change the whole tone of the work. Yes, she she's talks really interestingly about not understanding why why it was flat, why it was feeling sort of barren. Um, and she used the words white tundra, in fact, it really, really expressive, this sense of the Arctic uh, remoteness of not at all the warmth that she was wanting to conjure. And then as soon as she began to work on brown paper, everything lifted um, and everything changed. And she's talked to, has also talked about how that made her realise that we need to examine our defaults um, in, in everything, mm-hmm. not just... I think that happens um, in film, I think, doesn't it, as well? I think it depends what stock you use. Yes. And there are different well, people look different in different, in different sort of stocks. Yeah. And traditionally, it, the, the stock that's been used has been used to make basically... White kind bodies of look good. White yes. blonde people well, when, look good. When Moonlight came out, I remember Barry Jenkins' film, uh, everyone was talking about yes. finally people are lighting black bodies yes. 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 to bring them alive. For Absolutely. So this is kind of the... The paper equivalent of it. Yes, absolutely. So I suppose yes, you could say that it's an appropriate time to be, uh, to be lighting and celebrating all manner of marginalised characters, um, and this should happen on the page as well as elsewhere. Mm. Um, another one, I think. Another book, I think it's for the same age. Uh, age group uh, that I really like the sound of is Alfred and Albert by yes. Morag Hood. But I, <laughs> I am partial to Aardvarks, I must say. Sounds great. I mean, anything that allows me to write the phrase star-crossed aardvarks. (laughs) (laughs) What's not to love? Exactly. I hope it's not I hope they're not too star-crossed. No, no, they're really not. They're not really aware that they're star-crossed. They're just a, a bit solitary. They're a bit lonely um, because they, they don't know about each other's existence. Um, but there's this little blue bird who wants to play Cupid and is very frustrated by the fact that, that they are not meeting. Um, and it's just... The lovely thing about it is it's a very, very straightforward little story that could be about friendship or could be about love. But the protagonists are both boys. Mm. And... She's she's taken a classic shape of a story. She's illustrated it with enormous wit and charm. She really is a cracking illustrator. I love her work. And then she's she's exactly she's flipped the norm. Um, she's just nudged it so that and also the playfulness with the because both Alfred and Albert have an extra A in the front of their names uh, to fit with Aardvark. Um and everything about that just delights me I really think <laughs> it's a barnstormer um, At the risk of showing my age does anybody remember and I don't know when exactly it's from I tried to look it up uh, does anyone remember Frog and Duck? Yes, absolutely. They're still. They've been going for quite. A while. They have still mm. been been going through, which, and they're and they're a similar kind of thing, isn't it? If I um, remember right. Yes, in a way, absolutely. Um, there's a sense that love is doesn't need to be two of the same. Mm. Um, you don't need to look like the person who you fall in love with. Love just makes demands of you that you need to follow in in order to to live a rich and fulfilled life. Um, and yes, I think that that is on the same sort of scale and spectrum of acceptance of different kinds of, of love and relationships is a good thing. Hmm. Um, Murder Most Unladylike by uh, Robin Stephen came out in 2014, the first in a series set in the 1930s in a girls only boarding school. How do we how do we find things in Death in the Spotlight? How does how does she handle the historical element in the 1930s setting? It must be especially difficult, I would think, to not portray a relationship between two girls as illicit and wrong. I've loved this series since it, since Murder Most Unladylike first appeared. And I think it's partly that Robin manages to balance 
being saturated in her period, really, really, really having done her research um, and wearing it very lightly, but also making those little tweaks to amplify marginalised voices. So Hazel Wong, her, her narrator, um, is Hong Kong Chinese and she's the first girl in her family to have come away to uh, to boarding school. And so naturally she is the butt of all manner of um, of unthinking and deliberate racism. Um, but this is handled very carefully and very well by Robin. And equally, in the first book, we've got a teacher who, it transpires, was more than friends with another teacher and lived with this teacher. But it's not the sort of... It never becomes snigger fodder or anything like that. It's just... It, Hazel is a fabulous narrator for thoughtful processing and taking into her mind and understanding and making sense of and in the process allowing the reader to do the same. So in the latest book, when Daisy, who is by far the most sort of forthright and confident aristocratic English um, character of, of the pairing, Wells and Wong, the two schoolgirl detectives, um, when Daisy discovers that she is attracted to an actress who's currently on their suspect list... Um, Daisy is very worried that Hazel will reject her um, and they're in a theatrical context so they've sort of touched on the fact that one of the actors is gay and this is illegal and he is, he'll be endangered if people find out but this seems stupid to the girls because they think he's not hurting anyone, what's the problem? But when Daisy explains her feelings to Hazel um, and is so angry and defensive and spiky about the prospect that Hazel might reject her and Hazel just responds with such calm acceptance. Um, it's a it's an absolutely wonderful moment and I th really think Robin has, has done... He, she's done sterling work throughout the series but that's one of my favourite moments of, of all of them. It's I mean, it's present because you say that in the books there is a bit there's kind of talk about pashes and canoodling in the in the books of the time or maybe maybe a little bit later there is in girls boarding school books there are there are girls who get crushes on other girls yes anyway absolutely. aren't there it's, it's kind of a thing i think though that it's usually treated as a kind of training wheels for the real thing mm. um that you sort of you have your pash it's something that you grow out of um anyone who were to carry it on too long would really probably be be sent to coventry or looked at askance um and yeah there's not really the connection made between the kind you know the pash that might carry on too long and then the two ladies who don't get married who live in a cottage together that, yes that's, kind of, there's no continuum right the, yeah there's no kind of grown-up way of moving through there's no, no way of moving through from the pash no. to there's no sort of path there's no were. pattern given yeah. no yeah and in general it it's presumably well it's quite a rare thing to see sex treated explicitly in these books um, in books for uh, for eight to twelve year olds, certainly, and in books for the younger end of YA um, teen, or there's actually there is a thing called clean teen, which <laughs> indicates that there's no sex. <laughs> um, but uh, there is a book um, in my piece called Jack of Hearts and Other Parts, which Excellent is name. yes, which is <laughs> extremely frank on the subject of sex, and I am frankly cheerleading for it and whooping for it because 
and there's there's a real sense of oh goodness we're teenagers we mustn't really tell them about sex but th- how wrong-headed is this yeah. when the first place that most teenagers are going to look for information about sex is online and they will come across pornography um and this is hopefully this is a controlled safe environment in which to in which to encounter ideas about sex so yeah jack of hearts and other parts which by um lev rosen is very frank because the main character part of the time is is literally running a sex sex advice column um and so he talks about all sorts of things about how you might approach having anal sex for the first time um and he demystifies so much stuff um something that i've said in the piece is that it's like having um a smart savvy friend who's generous and and willing enough to share all of their terrible experiences so that you don't have to go through it yourself that seems to me just completely without parallel as a service to give to kids who don't know where else to find that sort of information and it's really funny and witty and lively it's really it's a cracking read as well mm. and also you can tell your parents it's educational because you say what well, i'm reading Leave yes me alone. <laughs> well, and it will be a they huge... won't know <laughs> it's true well parents are very unlikely to pick up a ya book and go oh, i hope this is suitable so <laughs> also that that brings me to my next question i suppose who who as readers get older, obviously, they're more likely to, to choose the reading for themselves. But certainly when, when we're talking about the younger readers, are these books relying on teachers and parents picking them up and giving them to someone who they perceive as being at some kind of juncture in their lives? Or Now, see, this is a very good question. I think that the less a book like this lives on the issues shelf, mm-hmm. which is kind of, which calls so much attention to itself just by being a part. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you could make the analogy that dyslexic kids would be less likely to go to the, the you know, the super readable or the easy reading shelf, even though they would probably enjoy those books very much because there is an implicit stigma in the in the books that are set apart. If these books are just on the shelf with all the other YA, um, and if, well, in the best case scenario, you've got a brilliant clued up librarian, either in school or in the kids section of the library, who knows enough about the individual kids to go, I think this might actually interest you, um, then that's what you really want to see. Yeah, because it's, as you were saying, it's well, it, it's like you're saying, Thea. There's sort of two ways of approaching it, but, but as you said, with the younger readers, that you just uh, you have two dads in the background or something picking someone up from a play date or two mums and it's just and, and he says, it's I don't mean that, mum. Yeah. I meant the other one. But that's as you said, that's not the focus. The only thing, the only um, parallel I can think of is in Frozen. My lads talk about Frozen. Yes, definitely. There's that. There's that <laughs> moment which I actually think is really important. When I don't know if you know it, Thea. No, no. I'm, I, I'm just it's nodding politely. Cracking film. <laughs> I'll burst into song at any moment. When there's a bit when the uh, it's the male lead, isn't it? The protagonist goes into a sauna. They're in the middle of it. It's all very frozen. It's all very very snowy, very very cold. Oh no, maybe it's the maybe it's the princess. Can't remember. One of them goes into a sauna. I think it's the princess, and she's completely unkitted out for the cold, so she has to try and buy some stuff. 
Uh, and so there's a funny bit with the, the shop owner who tries to sell her things that are out of season and all of that. And at one point, they're having a nice chat, and he says, oh, wave hello to my family who's in the sauna, because it's all there in... Where do they live? Somewhere Scandinavian. It's Norway, not very, I think. Is it actually Norway? Yeah. Wave to my family who's in the sauna, and in the in the sauna is another dad and a couple of kids, I think. Is that right? There's, yes, there's I, think, more, I think I think you're right, are. yeah. And she just goes, oh, hello, hello, Sven, and then they carry on. And then the film goes on its way. But what you've seen, in fact, is a family with a couple of dads. Mm. Perfectly normal. In the background, nothing to see here. Let's go and make a snowman. Exactly. And also that film obviously is remarkable for being, I think, the first Disney film that has that doesn't need to end in marriage um, and in which yep. uh, true love is the love between sisters and yep. the sisters save themselves. So, yeah, no, there was no frozen bashing here. It's, it's interesting that, that that sort of loops back to what we were talking about earlier on the when we were talking about Marvel and, mm. and the kind of the, the move away from nuclear families and when would it happen? It sounds like it already sort of has a little bit. Well a in bit the and, world. and frozen and, and, and I know that everybody kind of jokes about the song, but also people loved Let It Go because she's expressing her true inner nature for the first time and she feels much better. <laughs> I mean I know it sounds your eyebrows <laughs> there's a reason why little little kids love it so much. I mean obviously predominantly it's girls but little boys belt it out as well. They do, yeah. And um, and there's a reason for that because I mean the idea of uh, of breaking the rules and, and letting go finally resonates with most children because most children want more agency than they get um, but the idea of being your authentic self when you have literally had to wear gloves and be kind of buttoned into mm. yourself for your whole life long it's it's hugely liberating mm. also I think it's a good song but yeah. <laughs> Um, finally, this this would not be the TLS podcast if I did not ask you to tell us about the Pride and Prejudice uh, reworking that appears oh, in one excellent. of these. Books. It really is. It's splendid. Um, so it's by Karen Lawler, um, who I hope is working on uh, a full length novel um, because I really did enjoy this this story. I felt it was witty and light hearted um, and. Uh, it was just everything you want in a short story, um, but obviously it was also erudite because it was reworking Pride and Prejudice and it had two girls as the protagonists. Um, and something about the high school setting, um, and it begins with uh, at a dance and Lizzie overhears Darcy basically bitching about her um, to a friend uh, at the sinks um, and there's just this moment where she sort of goes fine guess I'm not peeing and comes out to challenge them <laughs> and I love it I love everything about it I think it's really really fab that whole anthology though that's from the anthology Proud, which is published by Stripes and uh, edited by Juno Dawson, there's going to be something in it that will resonate and speak to anyone who is in need of this amazing book with a, a rainbow clenched fist on the cover. It's lovely. It sounds it. Well, um, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank um, you for having me. And that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks yes. to. Sorry. Sorry, I was just going to say, unless anybody <laughs> wants to sing anything from Frozen. No, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, be my guest. Um, that is all we have time for. Our thanks to Imogen Russell-Williams and Ros Caveney. Don't forget about the subscription offer mentioned at the start of this episode, as well as the pieces we've discussed here. This week's issue also covers the story of L.E.L., the woman the Victorians wanted to forget but who haunted them. 
the origins of the infamous Myers-Briggs personality test, what dementia teaches us, the traumatic history of Notre Dame and Second World War sabotage, among a great deal else. Next week, we'll be looking at the middle years of T.S. Eliot, racism in Disney's Dumbo and Sudan's uprising. For now, though, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.